As I said uh, earlier, I've been in the midst of a class over the last few weeks in seminary on the topic of counseling the culturally diverse. And it has been a wonderful class for a number of reasons, but above all else, it has solidified for me one simple truth. Our God cares for people to the core of their humanity, and so we should too. Now, you might say that this is a pretty obvious fact, but I think it's one worth reminding ourselves of this morning. I say this because I am often amazed at how quickly we as humans can act to remove the humanity of other human beings made in the image of God. You guys ever notice that? Take, for example, the political issue of border security. Now, I'm not going to get into politics this morning. I want you to know that, but just take it as an example. The idea of border security and immigration, it is a horrid and yet all too easy example of the removal of humanity. The one thing that all sides of the debate can seemingly agree on, the one thing, is that the solution to the problem is for someone to lose their humanity. Maybe it's the immigrants themselves, maybe it's the Democrats, maybe it's the Republicans, maybe it's individual politicians, maybe it's the border security guards. But the prevailing school of thought is that one of these groups needs to be seen as inhuman and evil for any solution to be put in place. And what a horrible error that is. And it's not even in politics, it's in our everyday life. We quickly move to deem people inhuman when they upset us. It's easier to be angry that way. Greatest example is traffic, is it not? Now, I don't know if I'm the only one that's ever pictured heat-seeking missiles coming out the front of my car, <laughs> but it's amazing how quickly we remove, remove the humanity of people, isn't it? This last week, I was late for class, and I got stopped at a drawbridge in Portland. And I was sitting there for about 10 minutes, and the drawbridge was uh, going up, and the little cars in front of me were about to go, and all of a sudden, this guy in another little car darted right in front of my truck. And instantly, I felt the rage of righteous anger of traffic violations. You guys know what that is, right? God okays that in the first book of Begabalonians. No, I'm just kidding. That doesn't exist. And it welled up inside me as if he had killed my family. And I would be lying if I told you I did not have some thoughts about how I would lay hands on the brother. But as I looked through the car window, I saw a young kid who sheepishly was waving at me, thanking me for letting him in. And I realized he probably just got his driver's license and was scared to death of this giant man in a giant truck. In an instant, I had taken away his humanity so that I could feel justified in my anger. You guys ever get that way? Not you, probably, right? It's a survival tactic we employ as humans. If I don't think about the personhood and dignity of those starving around the world, I can ignore their plight. If I don't think about the person behind a person's sexual exterior, I can objectify them for my pleasure. If I don't think about the personhood of those that disagree with me, I can dismiss what they have to say or maybe even yell at them as they sit on the TV. If I don't learn the language of those in minority cultures around me, I can pretend that God has not called me to hospitality. If I view my children or spouse as possessions for my happiness, then I don't need to pay attention to their feelings. It becomes second nature for us to remove the humanity of those around us, doesn't it? But a huge part of the ministry of Christ was the fact that he stepped into humanity and granted respect and dignity to most of the society, uh, most of the people that society had forgotten. The Gentile, the prostitute, the tax collector, 
you and me. He loved the unlovable and gave them back their dignity and their respect. And he did so because Jesus cares for people. He cares for all people, not just me. Jesus cares for all humanity. That is why it says that he was the propitiation, not just for my sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus cares for the whole world, and the question is whether or not the whole world will respond to accept his grace. Sometimes we confuse the idea of salvation with God's care. Now, God cares for everyone, but not everyone will respond. And so what we see in the midst of God's commands to Israel is that they, like Jesus, that would come after them, needed to reflect his heart to show that he cares for even the least of humanity. They were to become his hands and feet of justice and righteousness that shows that he cares. Because as we will see today in our section in Deuteronomy 24, is that we'll see a people who care reflect the God who cares. A people who care reflect the God who cares. And this is what we're going to see with a series of commands this morning. Each one, each particular command, you'll see in your Bible, it says miscellaneous laws, usually in the heading. Each one will cover a specific situation with a specific group of people that in many cultures and societies would be taken advantage of or dismissed. And so our, in our text this morning, we're going to see a people who care reflect the God who cares. The first main point I want you to write down is this. The God of the Bible is a good God who cares for those made in his image. The God of the Bible is a good God who cares for those made in his image. To really drive this point home, we see Moses stating clearly that God cares for any and every kind of human being. So let's go through them one at a time, starting in Deuteronomy 24.5. And we're going to take each section, each law, and we're going to go through it all the way through uh, into 25.4, but we're going to break it down into multiple different pieces. So let's start there in 24.5. It says, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. This law is similar to an earlier law about men who are betrothed not going to war. But here it is specifically giving room for the soldier to go home and enjoy newly married life. Yes, newly married life. But more importantly, he is given a year specifically. Now, can anyone think about what would occur during that year? Well, the whole point was, was he was supposed to impregnate his wife and establish a household. That was the entire point. Remember that in that society, a woman who had been married lost the value of her virginity, and so it was harder for her to get remarried, but was not able to support herself in her old age if she had no children, because it was a very chauvinistic, male-driven society. And so this shows God's care for the individual, and especially for the wife that is vulnerable. Now, even in the face of war, and the fact that soldiers are often treated like robots employed at the whim of the society they protect as expendable lives, which they never are, God was concerned about the young, newly married wife and husband. Think about that for a second. Think about how quickly we as societies cast off our soldiers as if, well, they signed up for it, right? I mean, you know, 
But the reality is, is that God cares for that soldier in the foxhole. God cares for that soldier in the midst of the battle. God cares for that soldier in the midst of his household. Take a look at verse 6. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. The average Israelite, even if very poor, could go and glean wheat in a local field. Even if you had no income, you could go to a local wheat field, as we'll see in a bit, and you could glean grains. And they could then take that wheat and grind it with this mill to provide basic food for their family, bread. If nothing else, bread and water. And when a person could not pay their debt, they might feel pressured into paying it by giving the person who loaned them the money their millstone, their last possession. But if that person took it, he would be paying off the debt, but would be taking away the most basic tool to feed the person. In essence, taking away the life of the debtor, making it so that they would starve to death slowly but surely. And this was seen as the poorest of the poor. Talk about a forgotten demographic of society. But here we see God's heart that there are basic necessities that are entitled to all human beings, regardless of who they are or what social class they are in. We just did an exercise in class the other day about classism, and we did an anonymous poll. And uh, everybody was supposed to uh, text in a word that they thought about when they thought about welfare recipient. And you know what one of the largest words was that was put on the board? It was lazy. And then multiple women in the class talked about when they were a single mother working multiple jobs and yet still needed WIC in order to survive. How quickly we dehumanize people who are in poverty. How quickly we make it about us and not about them. But God is not like that. God cares for even the person who all they have, their last possession is the millstone in order to make bread. Take a look at verse 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here we see God's heart against slavery and trafficking. For every other verse that talks about the legislation of trafficking, as we talked about last week, God legislates what is there in the moment, even though he desires better for his people. Here we can point to the fact that God is completely against the idea of slavery. What worse social mechanism could there be with regards to taking away the humanity of another individual than human trafficking or slavery? And the idea of turning a person into an asset, an object, or a piece of property is horrific to the God of the Bible, the God that we serve. And so God reserves the worst possible punishment for that person. Verse 8. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. This is an odd command that brings debate among scholars as to why it is here. Some simply state that it seems as though God is extremely concerned with the correct care for those that are sick, and that's definitely true. But it's not just about the community and the community being healthy. It's also connected to verse 9. Take a look at that. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now pause for a second. This refers back. Anytime you see this in the Word when it's speaking to another story, take a moment, stop and pause in your devotion and go and read that other story to gain the context of what the author's talking about. This refers back to the story in which Aaron and Miriam falsely accused Moses of trying to be a power grabber 
And God states clearly to them that they are in the wrong and they have rebelled, that he is close to Moses and he's the one that put Moses in power. And as a consequence, we see Miriam suffering from leprosy as a curse in the moment. And this is what Numbers 12, if you want to write it down, it's in Numbers 12, starting in verse 10. This is how the story finishes off. God is there talking to the people in the cloud outside the tent of meeting. And it says, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam, this is Moses' sister, she was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, in other words, shown disrespect for her and told her that she was disrespectful, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Moses intercedes on her behalf, but she still walks away with leprosy. And God states clearly, she still needs to be separated from the community because of her rebellion. So here you have this amazing story of the highest authority in Israel, Moses himself, and God is intervening on his behalf, saying it is not okay for you to try to usurp power, Miriam and Aaron. And at the same time, you have the lowest of the low. You have the person who's actually doing the rebelling. And so within these two verses, we see a strong command, not only to consider health and wholeness of the community and the need for each individual to realize that they are not above that command, but we see God's care for Moses, the highest authority, and Miriam, the lowest authority. And at that moment, the lowest person in Israel is cared for just as much as Moses is. We see in this simple statement, that God cares for the least to the greatest. Take a look at verse 10. I know I'm going quick, but as we move through these and look at them in whole, we see a pattern here. In verse 10, it says, When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. How different our society would be if we followed this law, huh? The collection of debt. It's very interesting how God views debt. When you look at all the economic policies of the Old Testament, God does not look at the debtor as inhuman. Again, this scripture looks at the respect of the person made in the image of God. And in so many cultures, even our own, those in debt are seen as lesser, maybe even subhuman. Even in the midst of debt collection, there is a respect and honor for the neighbor in debt. It was part of the covenant expectation of God's people that their lending and their economic practices would not lead to a dismissal of the common decency owed to another person as human. How do we tend to look to the more marginalized in our community? How do we look at the poor? And dear church, I am talking about those that stand on the side of the road and beg, yes, but those are always the outliers that people present and say, see, the poor, they probably make more money than we do. See, the Nikes on the poor, we don't really need to give to them. And those things sometimes are true. I will admit that. I have sat and watched a person who is uh, begging on the street corner, put their sign down and go get in their very expensive car and drive away. I've seen these things. We all have. 
But guys, most often in the Bible, when it talks about the poor, it talks about the person who is struggling to get by from paycheck to paycheck. The person who's going in to sign up for WIC and feeling a sense of shame because their third job just can't seem to pay for the eggs and the milk. The Bible's talking about people who aren't lazy, who aren't subhuman. They're people who, for some reason or another, maybe have not had the resources or access to the resources that many of us have. And God doesn't look down on them. So the question is, do we? Do we dismiss them in our political thought? Do we dismiss them in our daily life? Or do we see them as humans made in the image of God? We need to think about these things, not just dismiss them because they're out of sight, out of mind, but we need to ask the question, how can we assist the poor in our community in ways that do not enable them, but encourage them? It's part of the heart of a Christian. I'll take a look there at uh, 24.14. It says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners. Another word for this is refugees or immigrant that are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Guys, we've got to read these. We've got to read these. Notice here who God sides with. He sides with the immigrant. He sides with the sojourner. The poor hired worker, the alien, who needs his wages on the same day because he lives paycheck to paycheck. And the intimation is that God will hear their cry and act on their behalf against those who persecute them. Now again, folks, I am not talking about border security here or whether or not we need to have laws in place in order to protect our border. That is not the point. We have to read the Bible for what it says. Just because this person was a day laborer just because they were a sojourner or a lower socioeconomic class did not mean they should be denied their pay. They should be treated as human. Let's take a look at verse 16 there. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Praise God for that. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Back in verse 8, we saw the need to consider the community in terms of leprosy and abiding by the laws of the people in order to protect their health. But here in verse 16, we see the need to consider the responsibility and dignity of the innocent individual. In the world of the Old Testament, it was a typical practice to kill all of the offspring of someone that was found guilty as a form of vengeance or wiping out the evil of their family line. This is still a practice in many tribal groups across the world. But this is not just, and God knows this. That's one of the reasons I am so thankful for our country and for the system of law we have, even as broken as it is. This doesn't happen as often in our country. And so God cares about the innocent and vulnerable children of the one that is condemned. And we see Israel trying to act this out. We see, see King Amaziah trying to act this out in 2 Kings 14, 5 through 6. It says, And as soon as the royal power was firmly in Amaziah's hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father, but he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. God looks out for the vulnerable. He looks out for the oppressed. He cares for them. Take a look there at verse 17. 
It says, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, another word for the immigrant, the alien, or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Again, we see the heart of God specifically for the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, and the poor. Guys, you will notice as you read through the Old Testament that this fourfold grouping represents the vulnerable amongst Israel. These were the people groups most likely to be forgotten, those to be cast aside. But the God we serve is a God of goodness, a God of righteousness, a God of justice, of mercy, of grace. He is the one that came and saved us from the kingdom of oppression when we cried out to him. He is the God that we need to represent in the care for those around us, the care for those that are shoved aside by society. This is our call as his people that represent him, as his body. Take a look at verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Even though these groups, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, did not have their own land in Israel, they were not to miss out on the provision and blessing of the land. Let me say that again. Even though these groups are the groups that did not have land in Israel, the Levite is also included in that in other places, they were not to miss out on the provision and blessing of the land. Well, then the question is, how did they receive it? Because remember, in those days, if you didn't have land, you had nothing. You had no bank account. You had no 401k. You had no provision. How did they receive it? Well, they received it through the generosity of the farmers who did own the land. And guys, in our mindset, we think of farmers as maybe blue class or, or blue collar, middle class, right? No, farmers in those days were the rich. They were the wealthy. The ones with land were the wealthy. It was because the wealthy, those in the community who had the provision, provided for them. It's literally the medium by which God took care of the poor. It's not like the Lucky Charms guy that just manifests a thing of gold out of a rainbow, right? I think often we think, man, if God loves the poor, he'll just give them money. Does that ever work for you guys? God, I need to make my mortgage payment. There it is. Look, I can pay. No, not at all. God gives the blessing through the rich to the poor. That's how he gives to people in the community. This was not God being passive or inactive. It was God acting through his people to provide for those who could not fully provide for themselves. Guys, we are a manifestation of this. This building is a manifestation of this. I would love, trust me, to be independently wealthy and be like, hey, building. But guess what? I had to go to all of you and go, hey, guys, I got a few bucks. Y'all have a few bucks. And we've got some other really generous people that have a few bucks. Let's put it all together and here we go. Amazing how we're willing to take advantage of it ourselves, but then we think about those who are the lower classes of society, those who are the forgotten of society, and we suddenly make them subhuman. Again, it was not God being passive or inactive by working through his people. 
It was God doing that, working through his people to provide for those who could not fully provide for themselves. So up until this point, God has spoken about newlyweds, about those in authority, about those under a curse like Miriam, those who are in debt, those who are hired workers, the innocent children of the condemned men. And remember, children were not looked upon as human back in those days. They were an annoyance. He's talked about the sojourner, the fatherless, the widows, and the poor. God cares about the forgotten. God cares about the dehumanized. Is there anyone who God does not care for? Well, this next verse speaks to even those that many in society might say have lost their right to be cared for. This next section is for the criminal guilty of a crime. Look at verse 1 of 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come into a court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Guys, God even cares for the guilty. The one that by their actions, yes, they may have lost some rights. They may have consequences of even 40 lashes from a cane or a whip in this day and age. They may have the consequence of stepping into prison, absolutely, because it's proportionate to their crime. But God is clear here, you do not take vengeance on a person just because they're guilty of a crime. You do not dehumanize them just because they're guilty of a crime. Even those who are guilty should not be be degraded to something subhuman. To do so in the cases of the most horrific of criminals would be to reduce ourselves to their level. The very reason they acted in the crime they did was because they dehumanized someone. And our response is to do it back to them. But God says, no, that's not the way he operates. It doesn't mean that they don't get the consequence, but it does mean that we realize that they have dignity and respect and honor. And if that weren't enough to speak to the care God has for his creation, he goes one level deeper. Take a look at the last verse there in verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. God's care leaves no part of his creation unmentioned. Even here we see that he cares for the animals, that when they are laboring at the wheel, they might also gain provision for their labor. And what is interesting here is that it was not the highest of classes that would abuse their animals. It was the poorer members of the community of the ancient Near East that would often rent animals from the wealthier classes and then cover the mouths of the animals so that the the animals could not eat while they were breaking up the wheat for the poor because the poor wanted to make sure they got all of it for themselves in many cases. The poor farmer was only getting so much yield and so they didn't want to share with the animals they were renting. God asks all humanity, regardless of position or class, to care as he cares. But God says even these rented animals deserve provision and care. Now one might ask, wait a minute, Hans, animals are not made in God's image. Why are they included in this list? Well, what I want to submit to you that this section is closed with this verse uh, and the reason why that is, is that it puts a punctuation mark on all the previous verses in our text today. The point we can gather from all of these is this. You can write this down. 
If God cares for the forgotten and dehumanized, does he not also care for you? If God cares for the forgotten and dehumanized, does he not also care for you? We know this because Paul gives us commentary on this last verse, and we know that he had in mind the section before it as well, and he was looking at it very similarly to how we're looking at it. He uses this verse as the backing to some statements he's making to the church at Corinth that we uh, heard earlier from Paul, as well as one in 1 Timothy. In the context of the section in uh, the reading from 1 Corinthians is that some in the church thought badly of Paul and were trying to turn the church against him. One of the accusations that they were making about Paul is that he was just in ministry for the money. Now, there are absolutely people that are in the ministry for money. You know how you figure those out? They're the guys with the jets, okay? That's pretty easy to figure out. The guys that are always asking for money for their new jets, those guys are in it for the money, right? The rest of us, not so much. As I've said to you guys many times before, if I wanted money, I would have stayed in IT. (laughs) But the reality is, is that the church at Corinth was saying, hey, Paul's in this for the money, Now, Paul will go on in the text after the section we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 9 to say, I'm not even accepting any money just to prove you wrong, just to show you that it's not about money for me. I'm not going to accept any. But before that, he is making the point that if God cares for the animals and for the day laborer and these beings that are worthy of their wages, how much more worthy is he when he plants a church and he builds them up? So take a look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll read it again. First Corinthians nine, starting in verse three. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? It's another name for Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, what had been happening is the people had kind of started to dehumanize these these uh, workers of the gospel saying that, well, you're supposed to be servants of Jesus, so, you know, you should be sacrificing to such a level that they were dehumanizing them. But then Paul says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? And the answer is no, because he then says, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and he's referring to the very same text we're looking at today. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Whenever Paul asks that, the answer is, no, of course. He's not only thinking of the oxen, he's thinking about everyone else. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? See, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, see, you dehumanize oxen just like you're dehumanizing us. But don't we deserve our wages just like the oxen does? See how he's applying that? What an amazing application of that text. He says, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the the thresher thresh and hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Now, if we pay attention to those verses 9 and 10 specifically, we see that Paul is making the point here that God is using the oxen as an argument. If he cares for them, does he not also care for us? So we know how to apply our text from today. It's the exact same question. If God cares For the forgotten and the dehumanized, does he not also care for you? 
And we know that this is not just this one verse from Deuteronomy that is on Paul's mind because he uses the same reference to the oxen in another letter to his protege and student Timothy, who is the pastor of Ephesus. And he's writing to Timothy about how to conduct the business of the church regarding elders. And he says this in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That's an idiom in that day for basically you need to pay them. Okay? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I'm called the staff elder amongst our elders, and this is what I do for a living. Uh, they have other jobs. That's why you know, the balance of, of pastoral care and teaching is a little bit higher on me. And he's saying that those who do that are worthy of being paid. For the scripture says, and look at this, he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the cross-reference that you will notice in your Bible there is that he is pulling from Deuteronomy 25.4 as well as Deuteronomy 24.15. And he is making the same point that if the hired day laborer and the pack animal are worthy of their wages for their work, so are those who labor in preaching and teaching and leading. In essence, Paul is using the very concrete and tangible laws of the Old Testament and taking their foundational principle to apply it to justice and care for what, in this case, he sees as those who may be dehumanized or quickly made to seem unworthy of care. See how Paul's doing that? In both cases, the pastors of the church were being expected to care for the body, but being asked to do so without pay or at minimum low pay, which would leave the elders unable to provide for themselves. Now, guys, this is not about pay for elders. You guys take care of me very well. But this is the example that Paul is using and applying the text we have from Deuteronomy. And his whole point is, if God cares for the forgotten and dehumanized, does he not also care for you? If God provides for the forgotten and dehumanized, should not we, the body of Christ, also provide for those who are the forgotten and dehumanized of our society? And the practice of taking away the humanity of people is not just relegated to those around us. I've figured this out in the years I've done counseling. I find that we often do it to ourselves. Sometimes it's based on our sin. We say, uh, God couldn't care for me. You don't know what I've done. Sometimes it's because of sin that's been done to us, and this is often the case. We've been abused and manipulated and started to believe the lie that, that was instilled in us, and so we say, God cares for all of them, but he couldn't care for me. I'm too broken. Any of you ever that, think that way? Sometimes it's because of bad theology. So we say, God will care for me when I get holy enough. God may care for the pastor. He may care for the elder or the deacon, but not me. So we work and work to earn his love, not realizing that we already have it. Or sometimes we look at the situation around us and see it as hopeless. And so we reason to ourselves, God must not care because it doesn't feel like he cares. And there's no way this could get worse. And these messages often become so ingrained that we forget that they are even there and they start to create a gap and a divide between us and the God that loves us and has died for us. And that is why I want to remind you of this basic truth today. If God cares for the forgotten and the dehumanized, if God cares for the pack animal, does he not also care for you? Remember that these laws are not the fullness of the Torah. Most likely, the fullness of the Torah was much longer and in detail, but these laws were captured as case law to give enough examples to form the basis of the law. And so as Moses collected these, he was stating clearly that God cares for even the lowest and most ignored in society. 
the foresighted identifier of the vulnerable and the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the sojourners, the catch-all to say the lowest caste of society. And that is why he even touches on the animals and those convicted of crimes. These are beings that are worthy of care even though society disagrees. And so in the mind of the ancient Near East human, and maybe even in the 2019 American psyche, we think, we should think, if God cares for these, how much more does he care for me? Jesus stated something similar in Matthew 6.25. Why don't you turn there with me? Look at Matthew 6. Six twenty-five. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What a great question. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think if he were writing this in 2019 and stating this, he would add in a section of being anxious about relationships. And I think that his statement would be the same. Seek first his kingdom. Step into the church body. Love and be loved. Know and be known. You don't need to be anxious about relationships or abandonment. Let the church body love you. Let them be the hands and feet of Christ. Now, this is not just an argument against worry itself, but against the idea that God does not care, that God does not care for his creation or that God is not good. It's fighting against that. If we simply look to his kingdom and his righteousness, we see God's goodness. If we look to his creation, we understand that God is good. Guys, this is a sinful world. Can you imagine what it was like when it wasn't sinful? When it wasn't fallen? Man, God is good. He cares. Dear brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that God allows some level of collateral damage and spiritual warfare that results in havoc and chaos. And we will have to save that discussion for when we go through the book of Job in explaining it. But what I can tell you right now is that our text today unequivocally reminds us that we follow a Father God that cares deeply about each one of us. And sometimes we simply have to remember that in the midst of the warfare and the collateral damage. Dear church, can you remind yourself right now that your Father God cares for you? Can you actually accept that? God cares for you individually. 1 Peter 5, 7, that says that we're supposed to cast our burdens upon him because he cares for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe and know that God cares for you? Friend, even if you are sitting here today resistant to the gospel, resistant to God himself, I want you to know that the creator God still cares about you, even in the face of your complete rebellion. He cares about you so much that he sent his only son to die on your behalf 
as an atoning sacrifice for your sins, for your rebellion. He gave himself to die for that sin. The Bible says that when Jesus, God the Father's Son, resurrected from the grave three days later, he was enthroned as king over a conquering kingdom into which he has invited you in spite of your rebellion. That's how God, how good God is. And he cares about you so much that he is calling you out of the bondage to sin and brokenness that you exist in and into his kingdom of truth and freedom. God is good. Sometimes the church is screwed up, but God is good. Sometimes people suck, but God is good. The reality is we serve a good and loving God that cares for you. And when the church is at its best, and when people are living within the fullness of the Spirit, we see that God is good through one another. Amen? And so this leads us back to the text in Deuteronomy to see the application that was also there for the Israelites. Lastly, you can write this down. Since God cares for us, then we should reflect his care to others. But you have to, you have to realize that first point there, that, or the, the second point. You have to realize that God cares for you. Otherwise, it's really hard to overflow with care for others. Otherwise, you end up in what's called compassion fatigue. You feel as though God doesn't care for you, but you're supposed to care for others. At the core of these laws is a respect of personhood, a care for the oppressed and the poor, and that our own desires and interests should never come at the expense of other people, ever. One of the greatest pictures of this covenant commitment to God's image, or to image God's character in daily life, is found in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Why don't you turn to Ruth chapter 2? It's the last place I'll turn you. Go to Ruth chapter 2. It's right there after Judges and right before 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Don't ever be afraid to use your uh, table of contents in the front of your Bible. Take a look at Ruth chapter 2. Many of you know the story. Naomi and her husband Elimelech left Israel with their two sons because of a famine. And shortly thereafter, the two sons and Elimelech, all the men in the family, they all died. And so the three women are left alone, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi decides she's going to go back to her people in Israel. And she tells her two daughters-in-law not to follow her because it was the time of the judges. Now we can guess why she went back, but I suspect it might be because she knew the Torah. She knew what God's people were required to do, something the Moabites weren't required to do, to take care of the poor and the widow. Now, this was the time of the judges when everyone, even in Israel, did what was right in their own eyes, a time of lawlessness and inhumanity, and Moabites were not looked kindly on in Israel. And so Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she leaves and stays in Moab, but Ruth loved Naomi well and went back with her to Israel they went back as two paupers, as two widows with absolutely nothing. They were the lowest caste of society. But Ruth knew the Torah, and so she knew that because of the laws of our text today, she could go and glean after the harvest. So she would try her luck at the field of one of her father-in-law's relatives, Boaz. Let's pick it up there in Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in, whom, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now where would she get an idea like that? 
that you can go as a poor person and glean in the field from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but also Deuteronomy. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So he is allegiant to Yahweh. It is his greeting. He is saying, I come in the name of Yahweh. And he's going to show that he does that as well by his actions for the poor. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young, uh, the young men not to touch you? So he provides not only provision, but protection in a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. And then he says, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Imagine if you were in her shoes, no hope, feeling helpless, knowing that the weight of caring for your elderly mother-in-law was on you and you had no resources in a society that thought that you were the lowest of the low. Imagine the relief she felt. She fell on her face in gratitude and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Wow. How can we take that into our minds and hearts? How can we be like Boaz? How can we stand up in the middle of a political discussion that is very ugly, that centers around the topic of foreigners? Something to think about. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, hold on a second. Boaz, let's be a little bit more humanist here. She didn't come to take refuge under God's wings. She came to you, dude. You're the one with the money. Come on, this isn't God acting, is it? No, what does Boaz say? I am acting as an agent on behalf of God. See, bad Pentecostal theology says that we all should just sit around and passively wait for God to do all the work. Good biblical theology says that God is doing the work and he's doing it through his people. That's why Paul says in Romans, for example, if you want to evangelize, don't wait for God to open up his mouth from heaven. He's actually sent you. How can they hear unless you are sent? He uses his people. And so Boaz says, may the Lord repay you. Good, Boaz. Who's going to repay her? Well, actually, he is. He's going to reward her and show her care because he knows she sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh and he is Yahweh's agent. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Oh, man, the story gives me chills. I almost weep every time I read it because in my opinion, 
Ruth is almost more of a gospel than some of the gospels. It is so beautiful to see what Jesus' ancestor in Boaz, what his ancestors in Ruth and Boaz, how they're living out the law of God before they even see Jesus example it. Ruth was poor, a sojourner and a widow, and she found favor in Boaz's eyes so much so that she received protection and provision. It wasn't just crumbs she was picking up, but strength of provision. Boaz was purposefully caring for her. Why? Because in verse 12, it says that Boaz knew he was the agent of God. She came to seek refuge under his wings, under God's wings. And so Boaz, acting on behalf of God as the hands and feet of God of Israel, cared for her. I want you to pause and ask yourself this morning, how might you show these character traits of God to those closest to you? Sometimes we don't even need to go to the immigrant, to the farthest reaches of our country or the world. Sometimes we need to look to those that are closest to us. Is there someone close to you that is vulnerable and needs your help? Is there someone going through something that needs your proactive care and affirmation? A neighbor, a friend, maybe an aging parent, a child, maybe someone in this church. I've been humbled over the last couple of months because if you didn't know my mother-in-law has been going through some transition in health and also in uh, location of residence. And multiple times, my flesh has reared up ugly, worried about my life and how it impacts me. And my wife has been amazing in the care of her mother. And she has acted as a Ruth to a Naomi. And it is an amazing thing to watch. And I'm humbled by it. And she didn't need to look past even her closest circle to recognize that she could help the vulnerable closest to her. Who is it in your circle that is vulnerable and needs your help? Oftentimes, it's even your neighbors. Do you know your neighbors well enough to know that they need help? How do these underlying character traits of God cause us to respond maybe to our spouse or our friend or our child when they show us vulnerability and hurt? When our own children come to us in those sometimes annoying ways and they're expressing their emotions, do we stop and bend down and help them through their emotion or do we worry about how they're bugging us? Again, I am the chiefest of sinner in that one. Do we care for those that are invisible in our culture? Do we care for those that are invisible in the minority cultures around us? Dear church, we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And the first step of that is to view even the most unlovable around us as he would with care, dignity, and respect. This is a topic that doesn't get talked about much anymore. But after 9-11, what was the group that all Americans pretty much started to dehumanize? those who were of Arab ethnicity, those who were Muslims, oftentimes even those that, that Americans would mistake for Muslims, Sikhs, for example. Do we care about those who are of, of uh, the Muslim religion, the Muslim faith of Arab ancestry? Do we care enough to pray for them? Do we care enough to send missionaries? Do we care enough to support the missionaries in those places? Or do we de dehumanize them? We need to love people that are the most unlovable around us as he would, with care, with dignity and respect because we have seen redemption from the God that saved us and we must show redemption to those that cry out for it. One of the ways that we act as the hands and feet of Jesus in this church is through our work in Burkina Faso internationally and here at home through DHS. It's a way that we use our time, talents and treasure to care for those who are forgotten by much of the world. This next Saturday, we will be discussing some more outreach ideas at our congregational meeting and I want to encourage all of you to reach for more ways that we can bring dignity and honor to those in our community. 
and around the world so that we can show them the love of Christ with our actions and then follow it up with our statement of the gospel of Jesus that motivates us. But I want to finish this morning with a reminder of what simply caring can do, what even the small things can do, what even tithing can do. You as a church just collectively sent over enough money to roof five more churches in Burkina. I think in total as a church over the eight years we've been in existence, we're upwards now of between 50 and 60. I've actually lost count. I know that's terrible, but that's a good thing that we've lost count. Let's keep losing count by sending many more over. And Marcel sent back a few pictures of the churches. But what I want you to hear as I show you the pictures in a short, short video, it's only a couple minutes here, is how your care and generosity leads to their giving glory to the God we collectively serve. You will see one of the roofs being installed, but you will also see the people in that church praising God in prayer for his provision through you. And you'll hear Marcel thank us in the typical Marcel way because he starts off with a joke. And then you will hear the pastor of the church. And I love what he says. He says, you are only human beings, but you are the servant of the Lord. And God uses you to bless us. Very similar to what the conversation we, between Boaz and Ruth was. You and I can be used, even as Boaz was to bless Ruth. We can be the hands and feet of Christ, letting even the least know that God cares for them in Salem and Kaiser, in our own homes and neighborhoods and around the world. And so let's take a look at this video now. Worship team, you can come on up while we're watching it. And I just want you to really pay attention to what the Lord is doing through you, even in the most simple of things. Uh, don't worry about my t-shirt, okay? I don't mind. I'm not a fan. It's just a joke. I would like really to thank you so much for providing for many church roofs for my people in Burkina Faso. The last church picture you have seen where was waiting for the roof five years ago. And you provide, you bless it. All the people there are very happy. That's why I want to thank you. May God continue to bless you, to strengthen you, so that you can keep blessing us uh, through church roof. May the Lord bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Pastor Salmon Sego. Uh, our village name is Bangri. Uh, Bangri is uh, the district name. We are so happy. We are thankful to God. And we are thanking uh, Pastor Hans so well for what you have done and you prayed and provide for our church roof. Only God can reward you. We are human beings, but uh, uh, you are the servant of the Lord and, and God uses you to bless us. Our prayers, if that God can make you strength and keep blessing you, an off kind of blessing can come upon your church members to provide every time. In Jesus' name, Amen. God may God bless you.
Church, if Deuteronomy tells us that God loves even the lowest of societal castes, what does that mean for his care for you and for me? And what does that mean for his call to reflect his care to the world? What an awesome responsibility we've been given to be born as people with means, as people that have resources. So let's look for ways not only in our own community, but to the ends of the earth and continue in our work with Burkina Faso and with DHS here at home and a number of other places. But let's keep striving and looking for avenues and ways to be a people that reflect who God is, that reflect the God who cares. Because he first cares for you and he has saved you. He's done everything. He's laid down his life to save you. And so we respond by showing that we are willing and able to show that same care for the people around us. If you don't know Jesus today, I would love to talk with you in the back about what it is to be a disciple and walk with Jesus, to accept Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross for your sins, to accept that he is your risen king that's resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father, and to walk as a disciple within his body of Christ. I'd love to talk with you back there. If you're a believer, today is a day where you can be encouraged at what the cross and the resurrection and the enthronement has done for us. It's created a kingdom that we know we are part of. And so we can live and act as citizens of heaven on behalf of a God who cares.